This is The Rooted Podcast, a conversation about the Christian worldview and its implications for every part of life. The Rooted Podcast is hosted by Steve Royce and Brady Johnson. Together, they have over two decades of experience in the business and tech industries and share a desire to help others filter all of life through the Christian faith. Thanks for listening to The Rooted Podcast. I'm Steve. And I'm Brady. And on this episode, we're going to be taking a deep dive into some more divine attributes of God. We're going to be kind of recapping the uh, episodes that Steve did on the Fruit Snacks for holiness, justice, and grace and mercy. Cool. Yeah. And then I think to kick it off, uh, really I, what I'd like for you to do, Steve, is just kind of give us a full recap of kind of the three, um, how they're going to kind of dovetail into uh, what was this last week's uh, episodes on the atonement. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to spend some time sort of teeing up this past week's episodes on the atonement. The uh, would be episodes 96, 98 and 100 about how Jesus's death can uh, effectively pay for our sin by first discussing some divine attributes that all, as Brady said, dovetail into the doctrine of the atonement. And those are God's holiness, his justice, and his grace and mercy, which are sometimes intertwined, but they're they're actually very distinct. And so on the episode on holiness, we just kind of touched on this idea that not only is God holy, and we think of that in, in moral terms most often, but that a more literal translation or of the idea of holiness from ancient Near Eastern culture just means to be set apart or to be sacred. And because of that, what you find throughout the Old Testament is that it's not just God that is said to be holy, but you have all sorts of things that are set apart or that are sacred for holy use or for temple use. And so you have plates and cups and locations and certain objects being declared holy, which just means that in the religious thought, they are to be used exclusively for this sacred or set apart purpose, as opposed to being something that is uh, mundane, which just means that it's, it's just normal. It's for everyday use. And so God is certainly set apart because as we've talked about Elohim in the past and, and the sort of broader context behind that word, God is an Elohim, Yahweh is, but but there is no Elohim like him. He's unique, and in that way, he's holy. He's set apart and altogether different from anyone and anything else. And so as a result of his being set apart, that means that as creator, as uh, deity, that he has certain say over how th- how his creation operates. And so when he declares that his people should be set apart because he is set apart, then that sort of comes with it certain moral obligations. Again, it isn't, it isn't about um, following certain rules so that God doesn't get grossed out and have to run away. It's more about... Uh, 
the ancients would have thought of it in context of being uh, able to stay uh, worthy of being in the presence of deity. And it, it, we, we could think of it probably more accurately in our way, uh, almost like this idea of spiritual uh, cleanliness in terms of like disinfecting an area that because we're sinful, because we uh, are fallen, that when we do those things, it's almost like in a spiritual sense, we went out and we, we played around in the mud and we're dirty in a spiritual sense. And God's house is clean. Not like your grandma's house where there's plastic over everything, but God's house is just, it's pristine because of who he is. And so if we are going to come into his house, we better not track mud everywhere through. That's That would have been considered a, a huge uh, faux pas, a big, not only a sign of disrespect, but I mean, specifically we see examples of like uh, the offering of strange fire that actually got um, got, got to two of the priest's sons uh, killed because they, they very flippantly uh, entered into God's presence and they were not holy. They, they had not taken the time to do it the way that God said to do it. And so if we want to be in relationship with a holy God, there are certain, um, certain practices and certain things we need to do it his way. And so it's not just Uh, It's not just a matter of preference or that kind of thing. And so that leads into another attribute of God, which we talked about, which is his justice. And this is the idea that God is, he is right in his judgments of things, that he is not just accurate and precise, but that morally his decisions are always good. Uh, He never makes a bad call. And because of that, because he's holy and also because he's just, it means that that sin uh, has to be punished. There is no way around God punishing sin because if there is no consequence for sin, any sin, then God ceases to be just and he ceases to be holy and he ceases to be God. And so for him to be who he is, uh, it's not it's not like he can just not worry about it. Uh, he has to right every wrong. It's a... It's a moral imperative for him. And lest we think that that somehow, you know, makes God just this stuffy guy who can't can't get over things. If God were to let any sin go, whoever was on the the receiving end of that sin, whoever was the victim there, they would not look at God and think that he was good. And so we we can look at situations and say, oh, why can't he just forget about it? Because we weren't on the receiving end of it. But if you were on the receiving end of a family member who had been murdered or uh, a rape or abuse or any kind of crime done against you or someone that you love, if God just decided, eh, I'm not going to worry about it, you wouldn't think God is good and you'd be right. And so his justice and his holiness demand that all wrongdoing is eventually rectified, that it all gets what it deserves. And that leads into sort of the good news, which is the, this idea of grace and mercy. And grace and mercy, as I said, are intertwined, they're related, but they're very different things. In a nutshell, grace is the receiving of something undeserved. 
whereas mercy is not receiving something deserved. And so these both go together in salvation from a Christian worldview because grace is the part where we get where we get to go to heaven uh, because we don't deserve that, but we're going to get it anyway if we trust in Jesus, if we choose to uh, place our trust in him. Whereas mercy is the not having to go to hell part which we do rightly deserve because of the sin that we have actually committed. And yet that is covered by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And so grace and mercy, as I said, are related. They're sort of two sides of the same coin. And what we find, which is this past week's episodes on the atonement, is that in the cross and in the person of Jesus, these divine attributes of God's holiness, his justice, and his grace and his mercy all come together in this kind of amazing uh, picture uh, that we see in the cross. And and so I thought it would be good and important to kind of lay that theological uh, framework for us before we move on to discussing some of the more technical or the finer points of, um, of the cross. Because if we don't start with this idea very firmly in mind that sin has to be punished, that God is not good if all sin is not punished, then there are just going to be too many, too many hangups and stumbling points as we try to work through the doctrine of the atonement. So if we can start there, then the whole doctrine gets a lot easier to, to work through and to discuss. So yeah, no, that's really good. And I think that's a really good summary because you can kind of see this this framing happening when you look at, you know, holiness and this idea of being set apart. It kind of sets that foundation and frames this idea of, you know, when God is being just, he's doing it under that context of holiness, right? He, mm-hmm. Because everything is set aside, you know, I like the the imagery of, you know, coming into God's house, you know, you're not dragging in that mud. Right. Holiness is setting apart this special place of God's house where, you know, a just God, because this is set apart, because this is who God's God is and his house. Right. He would be unjust to allow you to come in with those muddy shoes. Right. Yeah. But the grace and mercy comes into effect, you know, for us as sinners. Yeah. And it's just it's just kind of beautiful picture in the the episodes this week for for a time, I think would be a a good topic for a, a deep dive as well. Mm hmm. Yeah, that reminds me of something that, as you were talking, that uh, a, an analogy, and no analogy is perfect, but one that might help us think a little more clearly about the difference between uh, atonement in the Old Testament versus the kind of atonement that we're talking about with Jesus is in the Old Testament, there was no sacrifice that would pay for sin, that would actually remove them. And the writer of Hebrews actually talks about this, that the blood of bulls and goats can't, can't truly pay for sin. And so what was happening in the Old Testament is not that their sins were being paid for, but the language that gets used is that their sins were being covered. So a, a way to maybe think about the difference is that God, his house, you know, and is clean and, and to come into God's house, which is something that God desires for us to do. There has to be that, that holiness there. We have to be set apart. We can't be bringing all our tracking, all our mud into the house. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we, we kind of, <laughs> we stink of sin because of 
the sin that we've committed. And while God, as scripture says, is able to, uh, in the Old Testament times, especially to overlook that sin for a time because God knew that there would be a time in the future where that sin would be paid for, which again is something we see in Hebrews, it, the Old Testament sacrifices, the difference would be something like if you or I just just did a really hard workout and we're just, we stink, which is on my mind because right before this podcast, I did a really hard workout and uh, Brady had to wait while I ran up and took a shower because <laughs> I stunk. So the difference would be in the Old Testament, my covering of my stink my sin would be like me just running upstairs and just dumping a whole bunch of cologne on. And it's going to, it's going to mask the stink maybe enough that Brady can tolerate being in my presence, <laughs> but it truly is not taking the stink away. You know, it's like, it's just, it's covering it for a time, but it's really not a solution. It's just a temporary fix. It's a band aid. Versus in the New Testament, what Jesus has done, and this is the language that actually gets used, so this is a biblical idea here, is that we have been cleansed by Jesus, which means that it's the difference between pouring cologne on my stinky body or actually going and being bathed and taking a shower and being truly clean to where I can come down and say, no, I'm not trying to cover up any stink. There is no stink. And that's because the issue has been taken care of. Now, that didn't come without cost, and that's part of the atonement. But I think that's a difference that we maybe can visualize between the Old and the New Testament of what exactly is going on there when we look at the sacrifices of animals versus the sacrifice of Jesus. Yeah, that was really a, a really good sum up, and thanks for showering and not dumping <laughs> yeah, cologne. you're welcome. I would not do that to you, dude. Yeah, no. So that's, I mean, that's, that's a really good, um, I'm a very visual person. So it's really good to, to have these kind of visual analogies to think through because it does help put it in perspective, even though I know that a lot of these, they don't quite hit on every note. It's enough to really just understand it. So that's pretty good. Yeah. So when we talk about these identifying what is holy and what is set aside, you know, when you think about it, are there would you say there are specific things, classifications when you're thinking about holiness? I mean, we talked about, you know, obviously God is holy. We are holy or we're meant to be holy. Mm -hmm. Certain places are intended to be holy. You know, uh, how, how would you maybe classify some of those? So I guess part of where my mind goes is thinking again about the difference, distinguishing between the old Testament and the new Testament, because everything, everything changed when, uh, you know, post to Jesus. And mm -hmm. so what you find in the old Testament is you find places are holy. Objects are holy. Certain, certain, uh, days are holy. And part of this has to do with ancient near Eastern thinking about how you worshiped a deity and that there were certain places. I mean, even before you get the temple, you have these high places and, and there's a association that goes way back with, people associating high places with the uh, the dwelling place of deity because it was basically as close as you could get to heaven without leaving the earth. And, and also the mountaintops, they weren't 
they weren't summited like they are today. And so they were really inhospitable to life. You just didn't, you didn't go up there. And so there was this separation uh, between us and the spiritual realm that was also associated with high places. And you get this not only with, uh, with Yahweh in uh, places like Sinai and uh, on the high places, Bethel and, and so on and so forth up in the, uh, in the Old Testament and Hebrew culture, but you also see it even in Jewish culture associated with other spiritual beings. There's Jewish lore uh, from the uh, other books that were part of the, the Jewish thinking that weren't part of scripture, like First Enoch, where the, uh, the sons of God, the angels that, that come down in Genesis 6 in the Jewish thinking are uh, they they come down and they sort of make landfall on a mountaintop named Mount Hermon. And so these high places are associated with spiritual beings just throughout the ancient Near East. And so I say all that to say is that in the Old Testament, places and things and objects were considered holy because these were necessary. You had to go to the deity. You had to go to where he or she was You had to bring the right things. You had to basically, it was very ritualistic. And so all these things were necessary in order to worship the deity because you're, you're going through these rituals and and doing it the way that, that you're supposed to do it in order for you to have fellowship and, and some sort of relationship with this deity in the new Testament, you don't find places or objects or, or things, they aren't called holy anymore. Really, the only thing that gets called holy is believers. Mm-hmm. And that's theologically significant for lots of different reasons. For one, it used to be that the temple was holy. Well, the temple still is holy, except we are now the temple. Mm. And so there's a shift there from a place to a person that, that the temple is resident within us because the spirit of God is resident within us. So he's not out there anymore. He is inside. He's, he's immediate to us through the Holy spirit. So you have that. And then you also have this idea though, of this crossing over where objects used to be holy because they could only be used for the service of the deity or the mm-hmm. worship of the deity. Well, when you consider that in saints is just a really unfortunate translation because the literal Greek is hagios, it's holy ones. That's what it means to be a Christian. You are called a holy one. You are God's holy ones. So if we're holy ones now, instead of, you know, the the cups and the bread and the candles and the temple, well, we're the temple. So it also means and carries this very significant idea that just like those things were supposed to be only used for the service and the worship of God in the same way. So are we, Mm -hmm. we are now the holy ones. We are supposed to be used or use ourselves only for the service and the worship of God and not for any other purpose. And so that's where you get Paul warning Christians about like, what are you doing mingling your activities between doing some things for Yahweh and then you're doing other stuff that is close to your old life or that's, that's skirting the line between being involved with some of the old worship and practices that you used to do. To be holy means there's only one direction this goes. Like you're not you're not a red rover. You're not just bouncing around because that was that was disloyalty. And 
that in ancient thinking, disloyalty to deity was, that was everything, right? You wanted to demonstrate if you were really loyal to a deity that you obeyed him and no others, that you did what he wanted and, and nothing else. And so, um, and, and we see in the old Testament, God did not tolerate disloyalty because any other thing that would be worshiped besides, besides Yahweh was illegitimate. It was a creature rather than the creator. And so God didn't tolerate that. And so in the same way, like as we are holy ones now, I, it's helpful to think of ourselves in some ways in this way that that means that what we do should only be in service to and in worship of uh, God and for no one or nothing else. Really, uh, really good. Got me thinking here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, let's segue into the justice aspect of this and, and look at God's justice a little bit. I think uh, one thing that immediately came to mind was you know, you get a lot of the questions, you know, as a Christian is, you know, how can, you know, God be a just God because mm-hmm. X, Y, Z thing, right? Could yep. you name any, any event in history that's, you know, uh, supposedly, you know, terrible and, and therefore God can't be just. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And it seems like what you're kind of getting at is really, it's more of a problem of evil issue mm-hmm. of, you know, God's justice, but also his goodness being called into question. Like if God is really good or if God's supposed to right every wrong, then why did, why did this happen to my family or why did this happen to me or why do I have this disease or or so on and so forth? And this is one of those things where if we get into the problem of evil, which I think we will down the line, that's going to be a big undertaking, but I think it's worthwhile to do definitely. So we'll probably, I'll probably put my head down and just focus on problem of evil for a good long while and fruit snacks at some point. But for now, I would just say that, um, God's justice is, is best to be understood as is his goodness is best to be understood in, perspective in context Mm -hmm. and the writer of Ecclesiastes uh, and you even see some of this in Lamentations but it's in Ecclesiastes in a big big way is the phrase that I love in there that gets used is the writer talks about having a um, a above the sun perspective Mm -hmm. and what he means by that is that if you look at our circumstances and life from basically below the sun and, and again, in ancient thinking, so that would be below the heavens, below the divine realm, below what's going on in God's throne room and amongst his attendance and his counsel. If you just look at things from the perspective of what we can see, because we can't see that, we're not privy to it, then there's an awful lot about life that just does not make sense. Yeah. But if we look at life from the above the, 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 above the sun perspective, And we take into account that even if we're not aware of exactly what's going on, if we take into account that God is on his throne and he is directing things and that he's sovereign and that there's nothing that takes him by surprise or that, you know, that wrestles control away from him, then we can, we can hopefully rest in the fact that even if something bad is happening, that like with Joseph, that what others may have meant for evil, God can use and turn for good. And that does not mean that God is going to do evil to people 
just so he can turn it, but that God is able to sovereignly turn evil intentions by others through the misuse of their free will into ultimate good. And that may mean something like what Paul talks about in, oh gosh, I think it's Colossians. I could be wrong, but that it's early on in one of his letters, his epistles, he talks about how sometimes that when we're going through difficulty that God, God himself will comfort us, but that part of the purpose of God comforting us and therefore us going through this is so that we are then able to turn around and comfort those who are going through something similar or the same because now we have been comforted by God and we can then use that to comfort them. And so there is often a, a greater purpose or a greater picture, a bigger perspective of what's going on than just what we can see. And so even in the immediate, it sure seems like there could not possibly be a good reason for why a good or a just or a loving God would allow X, Y, or Z to happen. Mm-hmm. We need to remember that, and, and again, this is the intellectual problem of evil. This is not the pastoral issue. Like if right. someone if someone came up to me and they're they're going through it, I am not going to say any of what I just said to you. <laughs> right? It's not the right time. But for for those who are asking this question from a from a intellectual a rational standpoint. They just want to know sort of how do I square this logically that we need to remember and distinguish it just because you or I or anyone can't see the reason does not, it does not follow that there is no reason. And so if God is as wise and as knowledgeable and as uh, good and, and just, immense in all of his attributes as we say that he is and, and he's revealed himself to be, then it's entirely possible that you and I can't even think of a, the smallest fraction of possible reasons why God might do something. Mm-hmm. So to, to again, this is just for an intellectual pursuit. I would not say this to someone who's grieving, but it is, I think it is the height of arrogance to to think that if I can't get in God's head that uh, and and wrap my mind around why he might be doing something that he just can't possibly have a good reason for it. I mean, you've you've kind of you've made yourself out to be God at that point. Right. And that's not that's really not a great place to be. You don't want that job. Yeah. No, that's that's really good. And it it kind of brought to mind too uh you had made a, a a comment in one of uh, your past uh, fruit snacks where you said if if God is sovereign in one thing it's and I'm paraphrasing here what you said but uh, he has to be sovereign in all things he can't just be sovereign in one thing so I think man it was a while ago I think you're I think you're talking about the uh, week that we did on the reliability of scripture mm-hmm because I think I said something to that effect that if if God is sovereign and has was able to providentially ensure that scripture got written down mm-hmm. then I just don't understand why people get weirded out about the process of getting scripture to us today. Right. If God was able to make sure that everything that he wanted to get written down got written down then 
good grief, is he not able also to make sure that what got written down, that what he wants us to have gets to us? Like, of course he is, right? So he's either sovereign over all of it, not just the the originals, Mm -hmm. but he's also sovereign over the whole process of copying and transmission and what manuscripts survive and, and so on and so forth, so that we can if we really believe God is sovereign, then we have to also believe that whatever we have, which by the way is we have everything, but whatever we have is what God wanted us to have. Right. Otherwise he wouldn't be sovereign over, over it. Right. And I think that's, you know, same thing can be said here when we're thinking about his justice, right? Mm -hmm. You know, can't we also believe that his justice will be fully served? Like, is that, you know, going to be brought into question knowing who, God's characters are. Yeah, I think you, you look at Revelation and just the the picture of the the different judgments. Mm-hmm. And I've thought about this with some other people before of just that idea of I wonder if we're going to get to be there. Maybe maybe get is a strong word. I wonder if we're going to be there because I think for some of us right now if we think about it it'd be like, "Ah, do I have to?" Yeah. <laughs> but just think about how long it would actually take. Like how how long it would take for us to be there in God's presence with everyone as one by one people are are called up before God who have not chosen to trust in Christ and their works are reviewed and judgment is rendered and, and just judgment is rendered because in light of what they've done, they deserve death. That's the wages of sin, mm-hmm. as Paul says in Romans. Mm-hmm. And I had a professor in one of my classes in, uh, in, in school. He said um, he did the math on it because he's that kind of guy. But he did something to the effect of he said, let's just ballpark. Let's just ballpark and let's be conservative. And let's say that because God is God, that it takes him an average of like 10 minutes per person to review their entire life in front of everyone and, and to render his judgment. If you factor in not just the population of the world today, but all the past populations of the world, and you you come up with you know all these people, and you're running the numbers, knowing that the, the majority of people in history have rejected the gospel or rejected God in the Old Testament and chose to follow different gods. If you start to run all those numbers, he's just like, it, and I can't even remember, but it was some absurd number. Like we would be standing there for well over a hundred thousand years and but he's like but for an eternity what else are you gonna do right like we're we're there it's not like our feet are gonna hurt we're just <laughs> we're just there and we're listening and he's like you know part of it was him kind of thinking out loud of i wonder if that's part of what goes into why we as believers will have the perspective that we have when when we get into heaven mm-hmm. of why sin will never be a temptation for us mm-hmm. because how how much of that did we have to sit through and watch? And that, and again, I don't know if that's how it's going to work. That's that's up to God. But it's an interesting thought anyway to just think about that. Yeah, in that kind of a context, the above the sun, then mm-hmm. I don't think God is, I don't think anyone is going to look at God and be like, oh man, bad call, right? Like <laughs> right. When, when everything is laid bare, when you see the, and this is the other thing, when you see the, when you see people's, intentions and their hearts and their real motivations and their selfishness laid bare 
and not all the social niceties and the excuses and the rationalizations and justifications that we use for our actions. But when you see just the raw human heart laid bare for what people really think, what they really want and what they would really do if they could get away with it, I think we'll be disgusted by people. Mm-hmm. And and frankly, it, this isn't a pointing the finger. This is a, and if it weren't for Jesus Christ, I would be exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. My heart would be black with sin, just like every other person. I'm not better. I'm just saved. And so it's, um, it's one of those things when you think about it from that perspective, from God's perspective, I really don't think anyone's going to look at God and be like, nope, that wasn't just like, please, please, please. This is what everyone who has rejected you deserves. And just, if you don't believe God, like just look at him, we're going to see it for ourselves, I think. Mm -hmm. And just realize like, nope, God is, God has made the right call. Mm -hmm. And what's amazing about this is not that anyone goes to hell. It's that anyone doesn't. You know, that's where I think we're going to just be in awe and why it says we're going to worship him forever (laughs) because Mm -hmm. we will rightly know that like, man, if it weren't for Jesus, every single one of us deserved to go there. Mm -hmm. So the fact that any of us didn't is just, it's cause for worship. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a a perfect segue into the, you know, grace and mercy aspect of, of these attributes, you know, looking at, like you said, if it wasn't for Jesus and the grace that we've been given and the mercy that we've been given, we, we too would be destined for hell. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just, you know, for me, it's just a beautiful picture. It's something that, you know, as a parent, you know, being able to see those opportunities where it's, you know, to be able to point to God and say, you know, this is what grace is, or this is what mercy is. Yeah. And being able to demonstrate that through my parenting decisions. Yep. Um, and any parents out there that are listening, I highly suggest that in those opportunities where, you know, discipline might come through. Maybe that's where mercy takes its place. And then that's a perfect depiction for, yeah. or maybe not perfect, but it's at least a, a direction to point. To yeah. Christ. It's, it's hard to find balance, man. And I know like as, as a dad, I, my instinct is to lean toward justice. I just, <laughs> oh, I want to get them. Yep. I want to get them, man. And mm-hmm. you're right. And and you know what? There is a place for that. I think one of the most valuable things we can teach our kids is that there are natural consequences to bad decisions. Mm-hmm. Amen. But it also means that, that we do have plenty of opportunities to say, you know what? This would have been your consequence, mm-hmm. but I am going to choose instead to extend, uh, to extend mercy to you. And mm-hmm. you are not going to get that consequence, even though you deserve it. Yep. And yeah, we try to do that sometimes. One of our big thing is with the, the cleaning up the toy room. So our mm-hmm. routine is just about every single night we clean up the colossal wake of destruction that the, the perfectly clean toy room has become throughout the course of the day. And every day they got to clean it up, even though they know it's like, why did you, instead of picking out the one toy that you wanted, you just decided to pull the whole, the whole tray out and dump it. Mm-hmm. Why did you do that? You know, you're going to have to clean that up. Right. And every once in a while, Um, because we do want to build that into a routine, but every once in a while we just look at each other and say, you know what, daddy's got it tonight Mm -hmm. or mommy, mommy's going to clean it up and you guys don't have to, even though it's your mess. We didn't make it. We didn't help you make the mess, but, uh, we're going to help you clean it up. And yeah, it is good. I think it's, um, it's, it's valuable certainly to teach all attributes of God experientially if we can. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
yeah, I think it's a great observation and it's certainly, uh, it's certainly a worthwhile thing to, to just put, even if we're not the best at it, cause no one is, um, it's something that's really worth putting some intentional and conscious thought into as a parent. And even yeah. if you're not a parent, if you're a teacher or if you have any sort of youth or young kids in your life, it's, um, it's a good thing to just be intentional and think about. Right. Yeah. Ours is, uh, the grace desserts <laughs> and those, those come on occasion where it's at. You should eat your dinner, yep. but you can have the dessert tonight. getting something you don't deserve. That's yep. right. <laughs> something you don't desert. Is that what you said? No, deserve, but well. it fits. <laughs> I like that. That's a nice dad joke. Oh, perfect. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, like you just said, if you have other opportunities, you know, it's the turn the other cheek, right? Yep. Some opportunities that you'll have even in the workplace, you know, maybe someone says something foul to you or upsets you in a way. Yeah. Sometimes just, there's mercy and grace there as well. Just let it go. Well, I think that about sums up uh, everything. And like I said, nicely dovetails into the atonement uh, conversation, which uh, if you haven't listened to those fruit snacks this week, uh, go back, give them a listen. And uh, I think next week, uh, next episode's agenda will be a deep dive on the atonement. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks. See ya. Thanks for joining us on the Rooted Podcast, a creation of Rooted Productions and an affiliate of the Oasis Church in Gilbert, Arizona. For more information about the podcast or to submit a question or comment, please visit us at rooted.productions. Follow us on Instagram at rooted.productions or email podcast at rooted.productions. That's rooted.productions. We hope you'll join us next time.